I'm listening to music that requires no drumming, and I'm drumming on the phone. Mm. Makes no sense. Can you hear us both well? Check one, two. We're already recording. Hello, friends. Welcome to this episode of Rise and Shine. My name is John Wade. I'm here with my co-host, Dan Durbano, and our wonderful guest, Ayushman Dash. Hi, guys. (laughs) So, Ayush, we got so much to talk about. We already started talking in the car, man. Let's just talk about where we were where we left off at so you you had a crazy life why was it so crazy i had a crazy life i was in india on the eastern coast of india you grew up there i grew up there you were born there very small city the name of the city is bhuvaneshwar very difficult for people to pronounce Bhu- bhuvaneshwar bhuvaneshwar so all my friend all my white friends call it <laughs> boobs boobs <laughs> <laughs> so i grew up there very small city very close to the coast i grew up very close to the beach how close? Um, like walking distance? No, not walking distance. It's a 45 minutes drive. Oh, okay. So, but well, closer than we are to the beach. <laughs> it's very close. There's a lovely beach here, and I have amazing friends back there. Mm. I'm very close to my family, so I love, I love the city that I grew up in. Mm. Then I moved to another city called Bangalore. Uh, it's mm-hmm. one of the mm-hmm. big cities in India. As they call it the Silicon Valley of India, but I have not been to the Silicon Valley myself. Neither so have I. I <laughs> How old were you when you moved to Bangalore? Uh, so I moved to Bangalore when I was 23. Okay. Uh, first first job, second job? Yeah, first actually not first job. So I before moving to Bangalore, I went to Hyderabad. Hyderabad is another Hyderabad. big city in tech, India. Tech city as well? It's a very tech city. Microsoft opened their first R&D department, like Indian R&D department in Hyderabad. It's an amazing city. You get biryani there, amazing biryani. So if mm. you are ever in India and, and you somehow mm. land in Hyderabad, mm. You go have biryani there. Like you, you'll just it'll blow your mind. Hmm. So okay, coming back to the topic, I was in Hyderabad. Well, we could talk about biryani for a couple <laughs> hours if you want. <laughs> okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Hyderabad. Uh, I, I'll just say a few things because I love that city. I was there for three. No, I was there for six months. Only in six Hyderabad. months. Yeah, six months. I went there for a training before oh, okay. I joined this company in Bangalore. I went there for my training. I did my training there. I got a certificate from there. And I got uh, a systems engineer degree, mm. like a certificate, you can say, over there. And mm. I learned all about uh, how to set up computers, how to set up applications, how to deploy applications, software applications there. And then I got, uh, I went to Kolkata. I don't know if you guys know Kolkata. Mm-hmm. Only in West Bengal. Of the name, really. Yeah, yeah. so Kolkata is another state uh, on the eastern coast of India. And Hyderabad is on the south, uh, is in the south of India, okay. right? So from, from Hyderabad, I went to Kolkata. In Kolkata, I worked for three months, and then I quit. And that's an interesting story. Why'd you quit? Uh, yes. So I worked there, and I was an assistant systems engineer, right? And I was good at a few things. I was good at development. I was good at uh, deploying stuff, deploying software applications. And the company I joined was a huge company. And I told them I went there, and uh, they called them the resource managers. So you usually go and report to the resource managers, and they deploy you to different projects that they have. Right. In, the, in the city or elsewhere? In the city, outskirts of the city. Sometimes they would deploy you to a different city. It depends mm. on them. So it's their job. And I went and told them that, see, I'm really good at development. I'm really good at uh, deploying stuff. I'm really good at writing scripts. So I would like to do something that's related to that, and I'll be good at it. And the first response that I got was that uh, the company really doesn't care about what you aspire to do. And wow. you will be deployed, yeah. And you will be deployed uh, wherever uh, we think you match perfectly. And then it's up to you. You have to go join there. And you can say no, but only like one or two times. 
Like after that, you will be forced to go there or leave the company. And I was like, this, I cannot do this shit. Like this is not for me. Mm. And then so I could not quit. Yeah, but I did not leave because I could not quit because I did not have a job. I needed money as well. Right, right, right. So what I did was I absconded. I went back home. Yeah, I did not just, I stopped going to work. I absconded. I went back home. Hmm. I I went missing for a month. They sent me a lot of emails. I did not reply. Yeah, back in the day. Uh, sent me a lot of emails. I did not reply. And I found myself a job. So I interviewed in a few places. I told my brother. I called my brother. He was in Bangalore. I called my brother and I told him that, see, this is my situation. I don't know where I'm going. I need a job. I need a place to live. I don't have a lot of money. Hmm. I want to get out of my parents' place as well. So what do I do? He said, just come down to Bangalore. We'll figure something out. You'll stay with me. You'll definitely get a job. It's a big city. It's a Silicon Valley of India, quote unquote. And you'll definitely get a job. So I went back. Luckily, I got a job before going to Bangalore. I went there. I quit, packed my bags, went to Bangalore and started working for a small company with five people in it. <laughs> Very yeah. different. Right. And the whole time you were playing music. At that time, I stopped playing music. Uh, yeah, I stopped playing music because it was, it was a lot of things going on in my life. I wanted to do something. I wanted to work because I was not a professional. I never trained myself in music. Mm. I learned myself. I went for a few classes though, but then I trained myself. For, for the listeners, tell them we were just talking about your musical career in, in India. Uh-huh. So when I was in my hometown, when I was in Bhuvneshwar, I started a band with, uh, with my buddies and uh, it was a metal band. So Bhuvneshwar is a very small city. Mm. I would say back in the day, only f- 20 to 50 people <laughs> would <laughs> listen to m- metal. And uh, we, were, we just decided that we want to play metal. Mm. And uh, we listened to Lamb of God. We listened to, we listened to Rage Against the Machine. And then we just decided, okay, we want to start a band. And we want to play this. We actually did more than five shows. More than five shows in Bhuvneshwar. And we played metal. And in people came. You won't believe oh people came uh, and like sometimes I also don't believe that w- we, we actually did something in the city. Mm. It's a very small city. If you go, go to Bhubaneshwar ever, you will realize how that do you spell city. It? How do you spell it? Ayush? B-H-U-B-A-N-E-S-W-A-R. Bhubaneshwar. Okay. Right. If you go back, if you ever get a chance to visit Bhubaneshwar, you will realize it's a very laid back city. People are very casual. It's at least 10 years behind right? People are very slow. People don't want to do a lot of things, right? And that's kind of the culture of the place, Mm. right? And when we did all this, it felt as if we were doing something. It felt as if we we were a part of a movement, you know? Mm. You wouldn't believe it. There were very small fests. These colleges would uh, organize these fests and they would call people to play music. A lot of people would go and play Indian classical music because that's mostly what people play mm. right? and people would not play metal or people would not play contemporary western music right and we would go there and we will play start playing heavy metal and people would go like what is going on <laughs> sometimes people would also so people not everyone likes metal as well right and think right. of this small city where In people India. are very laid back conservative yeah. religious and we we are going there and our vocalist is screaming Right. They also take it very negatively. You know, people do don't take it very positively. Do they get upset? Do yeah, they? some people do get upset. They think that what's going wrong? Like, uh, are you possessed? Like, what is going wrong over here? Like, what are you doing? And uh, people don't take it very positively. So we saw a lot of that as well. But it was like those times were really fun. But then what we do, did was we eventually moved out and we mo- we started playing in different locations where mm. people appreciated it mm. and people knew what metal was. And then the scene grew somehow. 
we gave it like three, four years. In three, four years, the scene grew. Like three, four other small metal bands started popping in. Mm-hmm. And then there were small pub concerts where we will just call people and just people will show up and we'll start playing in a pub and stuff like that. It was crazy times. <laughs> really cool, man. Really yeah. cool stuff. And then when, you, when you, you said at one point you stopped playing when you got a little bit older. Yes. So this is right after uh, I got my bachelor's degree. Okay. So I played a lot of music. I played a lot of music live. I played with two or three different bands. So my metal project was not my only project. I collaborated with some other musicians as well. But as soon as I got a job, I somehow realized that, okay, I need to like start earning money because mm. this was not getting me anywhere. Like I was not earning money. I need to move out. Right. I need my life on my own. I yeah. saw my brother moving out. So I was like, okay. He's much older? Yeah, yeah he's three, three years older. Okay. Three years old. So... Um, I wanted to move out and uh, for some reason I thought, okay, I need to focus on my career now. And I focused on my career and that's why I stopped playing music. Maybe I I would have started playing music if my career would have been like a linear curve. Mm. Like, but it was not like that. It was not linear. It was was not linear. It was very weird. It was not... It was very unconventional, that's how I would say it. I, I remember, so you did your bachelor's, you did an undergraduate in computer science, and then, I don't know what happened in between, but you told me you ended up in Northern Europe studying artificial yes, intelligence. studying artificial intelligence. So how did that happen? That's also an interesting story. Yeah. So from Kolkata, I went to Bangalore, and in Bangalore, I joined this super small company, right? Five people working, five, six people working in a very small office. The CEO is sitting over there, like everyone trying to get some money for the company because otherwise we will not get our salaries and mm. stuff like that. <laughs> and our CEO and CTO, like those, I really admire those people. They're those people, are, they're, they're amazing people. They have this energy around them. You talk to them and you feel motivated. You feel like, fuck, I'm going to do something, mm. right? And those people, they gave me a lot of energy, I would say. I, I don't know if you guys believe in energy. I do believe in energy. People carry energy around them. And they have a lot of positive energy. So I learned a lot from them. I got really motivated. I worked really hard in that company. We, we, we expanded that company from a five, six people company to a 40, 50 people company. Like in a, in a span of, I would say, two years. You were there through the... Through yeah, the yeah, I, I was there. <laughs> and I, I made a lot of good friends over there. And they're still really good friend, friends. And uh, when I was there, we were trying to solve a lot of challenges, right? It was, uh, it was a tech company. It was a product company. And we were solving a lot of problems uh, related to Indian languages, mm. like developing ah, tools for Indian I see Indian how this connects in, yeah, the, see? in the pattern of your story now. Right. Because I know what happens later. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we started working on Indian language tools. And we realized that this is a difficult problem. It's like we don't have data. That, that made me realize that data is so important. You need a lot of data to train AI models. We'll go there. I was in Bangalore working in this company, working on language problems, Indian language problems. And I realized that a lot of things, a lot of models and a lot of data is already available for non-Indian languages, like English, um, Norwegian, French, German. You find a lot of models online, a lot of research papers online, but nothing in detail about Indian languages. Such as, like what are a few examples? So for example, if you want to do translation, let's say, you go to Google Translate, right? I don't know if you have followed Google Translate, but they added Indian languages very recently, right? right? So translation is one of the biggest issues. We do not have enough data to train translation models in Indian languages. There are only a handful of Indian languages that we have data for, Mm -hmm. and Google has trained models for those languages. But if you go to Northeast of India, 
you will not find any models. If you go to the southwest of India, any models on those languages. Yeah, and we're talking about exist. dozens, hundreds of yeah, languages. No, there's so many people. The tech has advanced so much. Like Malayalam. Malayalam is one of the languages that they speak in the south of India. Mm. You would not find decent models in Malayalam. You would mm. not find machine learning models in Malayalam. You would not find data in Malayalam. And there are so many people speaking Malayalam, Millions. not just in India, mm. but in the Middle East. If you go to Dubai, you will see Malayalis all over the place. Really? Yeah, really. The people from Kerala, so the state is called Kerala. They moved to the uh, the Middle East, right? And You've been to Dubai? Yeah, mostly Dubai, uh, around yeah. Dubai. Okay. <laughs> so, and so there are so many people speaking Malayalam, but no AI tools. And we are saying that AI is moving somewhere. AI is the next big thing. But if you look at it this way, India is such a big country. And I'm, I'm just talking about India. I'm not even talking about... Africa, I'm not talking about the Southeast Asia, like mm. Thailand. Like, can you imagine such a big part of the world does not have data to train AI models? I think we probably have to educate some of the listeners, at least give a baseline definition of what, what we're referring to when we're talking about AI or models. Mm. So anyways, one of us can do that, but I'll, I'll give it a shot. In layman's terms, a lot of AI is used for prediction, predicting something, predicting something in the future. And in order to help the computer predict, usually you have to give it some some baseline information to to learn from and then try to make predictions off that data in the future. And then when more things happen, it takes those new events and integrates it with its previous data and tries to make its prediction better. Very well said. <laughs> Amazing. Could not have been better. A very, pass. very well said. Amazing. So, <laughs> in, yeah, and then that can be applied in a, in a myriad of contexts. Right. So that's kind of a short uh, overview of what AI is and what AI models are. And there was nothing in that language. All of it was for different languages, which right. means people that are operating in those languages have like less access to tho that technology. Right. So in the company that I was working in, so the first problem that we were trying to solve was the Indian language internet. Mm. So smartphones had just come in. The so Indian language, language internet. internet. So okay. internet was there. So we're talking, smartphones just come in. We're talking what, 2007, 2008? No, it's... So smartphones were in, but in the big cities. Uh, I'm talking about India, right? Right. So Bangalore, yes. Right. But if you go back to, let's say, slightly outside of Bangalore, Not people so don't know about smartphones. People don't okay. know what internet is. What about today? Everyone has it? Everyone has it because of a company. So there's this company called uh, Reliance Geo. Okay. And uh, what they did was they made internet almost free. Almost free. Yeah. So To the masses. Masses. Like, it went crazy. Like people in villages now have smartphones with internet. So it's pretty crazy. Life-changing. Yeah, yeah life-changing, really. And uh, they're doing a bunch of other cool stuff as well. Mm. But we can go back there later. Yeah, so coming back to the topic. Mm. That I we forget what the topic <laughs> was. <laughs> so so we, we were talking about uh, how we went from Bangalore to, uh, to Germany. Mm. So while solving this, these problems, I realized that I need to learn AI because AI is the next big thing. We need to train AI models mm. to solve these problems in India, mm. if like obviously outside as well. So which year were you starting learning to train AI models? Uh, 2014. 2014. Six years ago. Yeah. So I started there. I learned a few things by myself. But what, I do you, what do you actually, you're learning Python, you're learning R, you're learning SQL, you're learning C Sharp. What are you learning? So 2014, I was doing Java. Right. Java. Java. So, so people kind of who don't know about Java. Universal yeah. coding language. Yeah, yeah. So people who don't know about Java, Java yeah. is a programming language that a lot of people use. Yeah. It's very de facto to make huge applications like banking applications. People use programming language like Java. So you're writing... Dan, go ahead. Why coding? 
I, I, I always wanted to ask that question. <laughs> Why coding? Why coding? I never thought that I'll I'll code. I I I had not decided that I'll Given you're a heavy metal rocker. Yeah. <laughs> well, what can I say? So <laughs> I so in India how it happens is that you take a test. It's like SAT. Take a test and then you get a score. Everyone takes this test? If you want to go for engineering, you do. Okay. Right? So you take a test, you you go to this center. So they call them uh, centers. So you go to these centers and there's a huge screen and on those on the screen they they show like 10 ranks and you also get a rank from the test that you took right and they show 10 ranks so you go you queue up and Jesus. then you keep walking and then you reach there and then tell you that okay these are the universities that you can enroll in and these are the subjects that you can take right you can get into computer science you can do civil engineering <laughs> yeah you can do civil engineering you can do mechanical engineering and stuff like that many many indian states they do this this is at what level undergraduate level undergraduate level. level yeah undergraduate so you level. do a test yeah. hundreds of people ev- thousands, thousands of ta- people tens of thousands yeah. hundreds of thousands of people right, do this right. test and then there's a process a day where yeah, you yeah. physically go in and queue yeah. up queue up there's hundreds of people yeah, online there's, I'm there's a screen there's a screen over there what does the screen say up. the screen uh, tells you that the top like top 10 ranks they'll show 10 ranks but the, the titles or people's names are in the ranks? Like yeah, yeah. So you know your rank, right? You, you got your score. You okay. know your rank. Okay, okay, okay. You look at the rank, and then you line up. Every person has one rank, right? You oh, line up, shit. and then you then This you is your walking. cast. This yeah, is yeah, literally yeah, yeah. your cast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's weird, right? You line up in your casts, in yeah, quotation yeah. <laughs> marks, line. Yeah. And then you get to the front of that line, and they and tell you. And you the options. They tell you these are the schools that might accept you or will accept no, you. No, will accept you. Because people are enrolling, right? People enroll seats go out like there are 100 seats oh, in this university the there are 200 disappear. seats in this university so if someone takes one then 100 minus one and oh it goes on right so if you're too late then you're too late right so i'm standing there i'm with my dad and i'm walking and i have decided that i'll go for civil engineering out of anything in this world i have i have decided that i'm going for civil engineering i am building shit, right mm. and i reach there and i'm standing and the person in front of me says that, okay, you have computer science, you have civil engineering, you have mechanical engineering, you have blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what do I do? <laughs> and then I go for computer science. And that's, you that's just I just picked it, yeah. It's you as were random as that. You were going to choose civil engineering. I was going to choose civil science. engineering, yeah, right. Completely changed the path of your life because you went to study in Germany and now you're in Montreal working in that field. Right. That's so random, right? I had not decided that I will do computer science. I decided I'll do civil engineering and now I'm here. So now that you're in it <laughs> and you've been in it and you're deep in it, mm-hmm. what do you like the most about it? And how would you how would you say the world that you were in with music prior to this venture, how do you feel that creativity transferring over into this new realm? It's a lovely question. I like yeah. Dan's questions yeah. better than my questions. <laughs> Very nice question. I think now I appreciate computer science more. Initially, I did not appreciate it a lot because I was not interested. I don't know. I just chose it. I just thought that I'll get in. But now I think that this is that people who code, they're changing lives. Mm. Like you're using your computers. You're using your phones. You're always on some app or the other. And they were developed by coders. Like if I write one line of code now, that's changing so many lives or that is affecting so many lives. This is how you can see it. I think that coding or computer science is changing the world right now. That is where the world is going. Anything related to tech or like anything in this world is related to tech these days. And 
there is at least one coder involved at least one coder involved including physics maths mathematicians they need to code these days if they don't code they cannot prove a lot of things so mathematicians need to code physics people in physics doing their phds they need to learn programming languages like thoroughly before they can run experiments and see hadron collider let's take the example of mm. hadron collider right correct let's let's do another explanation for the audience okay hadron collider <laughs> so, so it's a particle collider uh, where they take two very microscopic particles and they hit these two particles at a very high speed so that they can create a fusion reaction so what is a fusion reaction it is what is going on in the sun so it's it's one reaction that that generates a lot of energy and if we can get that right we will solve the energy problem of the world so this is what they are trying to solve so they are trying to look at these particles and they are trying to like analyze what is going on there so even even in the hadron collider people are writing programs like thousands of lines of code to control the environment to analyze the data to write machine learning models on top of it to make some predictions like what is going to happen if we if we collide these two particles together like stuff like that programming is everywhere so to answer your question that this is the future like everyone would need to code at some point in the future what do i do if i want to code are you sh- or myself or for people listening what's the most entry level or user friendly or bang for your buck way to to get into it like do i have to do i have to do a bachelor's in computer science is that the best bang for my buck what do you, what would you recommend no i think kids are programming these days i think you can just google some websites i can tell you a few websites if you mm. if you are interested yeah, yeah. one of them is hacker rank i love hacker hacker rank hacker rank hacker rank just go there r a n k h a c k r r a n k absolutely okay hacker rank and you go there and they have a bunch of examples from very simple examples to very complicated examples and you just follow what they are giving you and you will realize that in a month or so you know how to program so i can go on yeah you can go to hacker rank you can select your programming language and you can start from the basics and they'll tell give you some very small pieces of program that you have to write and then you learn very small parts of the programming language and then you keep evolving i would say give yourself a month or one and a half months you will be able to code like anyone will be able to code so i guess it's kind of like for me i'm relating it to learning a language mm-hmm. which this sounds more like an immersive process of maybe like if we were learning a language would be like move to that country and you learn it slowly but surely rather than learning all of the the theory behind it like if we took a course we would maybe learn all of the theory behind how to actually write code and mm-hmm. and i guess in this case we're actually just writing the code with hacker rank mm-hmm. if if for a second we think about coding outside of its connection to what we would be used to on a functional sense in a day-to-day work environment mm-hmm. how does knowing coding contribute to one's ability to truly experience technology in this lifetime well what what can it do for someone beyond just getting a job what can it do for someone who wants to build shit mm-hmm. what what are all the avenues that are possible cuz i feel like i love the idea of coding but I don't love the idea of coding just to go work for someone else to tell me what I should be coding. Right. I want to use it as an art form. Absolutely. What 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 do you think of that? What do you, what's your take on that? That's again very good questions. I don't know where it's coming from, but keep them coming. <laughs> yeah, the universe is speaking through Dan tonight. Yeah, I I I think 
I'll answer one more question before I jump to this. And that was the previous question related to creativity. I think being in music, like playing a musical instrument, being in a band helped me a lot in programming because programming involves a lot of problem solving. Like you're given a problem and then you try to think of the most optimal way to solve this problem. And because I, I don't, I, I cannot, there's no direct correlation between me being in a band to me trying to solve programming problems. But I'm sure that I had a lot of creative ideas to solve those programming problems. And I believe that our brain, there is something in our brain called uh, neuroplasticity. Mm. What is neuroplasticity? Is that if you train your brain to do something and you jump to do something else, your brain somehow adapts and uses the learning that, that it, like it uses the neurons that it trained in the brain to do this absolutely new task. So it doesn't start from scratch. It starts from somewhere, right? So the same concept applies here as well. So when you are learning music, when you are doing s anything else, let's say if you are a carpenter, you are cutting wood, and you jump and you do something absolutely different, your brain would use the learning from there and will adapt and use them in this new task that you are trying to learn. I think that absolutely works. I had that with, I played soccer for 20 plus years and then I started playing pool like billiards, like pool on a pool table, and I played for a little while, and I would train and practice and everything. And then when I went back on the soccer field, I remember seeing the angles on the soccer field very <laughs> differently, like the angles of passing the ball, and I would think it, it's a pool ball on a billiards table. Could happen, like yeah. absolutely. There's neuroplasticity. Yeah, it's like a very good example of neuroplasticity. Right. And uh, we'll come. Maybe we'll come back to this topic nowadays. We are training AI models to do something similar. So we would train AI models to, to be really good at one task, mm. and then we'll take another task, and then we'll not start training from scratch. We'll use the previously trained model, and we'll try to fine tune the previously trained model for this new, for task. This new task. And it takes like one tenth the amount of resources, it is much faster, and the models are much better if you train from scratch. So much better than, much better than if you train from scratch. Crazy, right? So this, I, I, so uh, people in neuroscience they call it biologically motivated algorithms, right? Wow. They call so the algorithms yeah, biologically, biologically motivated. motivated. In robotics, there is a field called biologically motivated robots, hmm. right? So they look at the world, they look at insects, animals, and they see how they move. They see hmm. how their legs are moving, how they're balancing, and they're trying to uh, and they try to program it so that a robot could also balance properly, right? And stuff like this. Just one example. I wish I could show you. I read an article recently that I don't really understand about Xenobots, and it was a university somewhere. They were printing. They called them robots, but they were printing cells of tiny creatures that they would make, and that the creature would walk around and do things, and it would have a few days life. But they printed the cell and made a creature. And I wasn't. Anyways, they called them Xenobots. I sent you the article. Xenobot, interesting. I look it up. Yeah. Dezen, if anyone wants to look it up, D-E-Z-E-E-N.com. It was in the last couple of days. But what I wanted to ask you about, which uh, reminded me of something when you were talking about algorithms learning, I uh, wonder if you have an opinion on this. I heard somebody talking about, on some podcast that I was listening to, pilots over-relying on the autopilot such that in the, in the very few cases that the autopilot doesn't work, they actually don't know how to fly the plane. <laughs> I wish we had uh, a pilot on here that, but is there any, mm -hmm. is there, you think there's risks of having humans relying too much on an algorithm such that they, they forget about how to complete the task themselves? Yeah, I think we are. The, I'll give you a much simpler example. Mm. The calendar. 
I don't remember things. Like for example, I have meetings. I rely so heavily on my Google Calendar that I really right. don't remember what's going to happen in the next week. I have to look at my calendar, right? And I think a lot of us do that. Mostly in offices, if you if you work, if you have a workstation, the first thing you go and you do at your workstation is you look at your calendar. Right. What's my day? My how my day looks what's like. What's my day? What's my week? Yeah, what's my right. month? And uh, maybe on a s- on a Sunday evening, you would open your calendar just to have a look at your calendar, right? Yeah. So this is a very good example of how small technological advancements are changing the it's way we think. It's interesting because it some of the changes are ne- are perhaps okay, valid, necessary. I mean, part of humanity is that we evolve and technology changes us Mm -hmm. i guess we just have to have some level of consciousness to when it's changing us for the worse and not for the better right absolutely i totally agree and uh, because of that we don't have google glass anymore if you i don't know if you guys know about google glass that's actually what i wrote my thousand word article (laughs) augmented reality glasses but why don't we have it anymore we don't have google glass anymore there's no documented reason for why we don't have Google Glass anymore. Really? There are speculations. People talk about okay, it. Okay, yeah. So what I read must have just been speculation. Just too expensive, yeah. so they took it off, and privacy reasons. Privacy reasons. I think that's the thing. People. Right. So what? my personal opinion is when these new technologies, they come in, and they change your life, hmm. but they change your life in such a way that doesn't impact so much and would not involve like uh, a scenario where a pilot left a plane on autopilot and the plane crashed if that is a situation then people will be afraid Mm. right people will be afraid and people will go go on and on about it in the media and then there'll be legal repercussions to it right and people will come up with laws so that they can restrict it but let's take the example of a calendar people will not come up with laws to restrict a calendar i see right see the point and if you look at let's say google class then it comes to privacy then people will talk about, okay, this is my life is my life. I don't want everyone to look at my face and then find out where I was two days ago and stuff like that. Right. So this comes into place. So I think there is somehow, there is this invisible line somewhere in our society mm. that's stopping uh, some of these technologies to move ahead. Mm. But there are some that still exist. Like for example, the autopilot, right? It will still be there. The reason would be, that hmm. they would take the negative cases, right? If you want to count how many negative cases have happened over the period of time that you left a flight on autopilot and it crashed, and then they can say that, okay, maybe none. I don't know the number. Mm. I'm just saying, right? Mm. And they say that none right. or one in even X one number of years. One is too much. Yeah, yeah even one is too much. But I'm, I'm, I'm just giving saying. an example, right? I see what you're saying, yeah. Yeah, and then, then they have a case, you know? Then the people who are developing these technologies, they have a case, right? And if they have a case, then they can make sure that it's in the market and they earn a lot of money. Mm. So it's a very complex system, right? But what I see that there is definitely a line in our society. People mm. are drawing it. Mm. And this we have seen in autonomous cars as well. Mm. People are not letting them next. in. Yeah. Right? People are very concerned about what's going to happen, what happens if an autonomous car hits a person and stuff like that. I think, I think you should tell the audience as well, Ayush, you also have a master's in applied artificial intelligence right. and... There's another component. Linguistics. And linguistics Linguistics as well. and language processing. So he knows what he's talking about and he works in that space and advises startups in that AI field as well. For, w- I'm glad you took it to autonomous driving. There was a, another concept that someone talked about that reg- regardless of how many deaths happen now from one human accidentally crashing into another, let's say it's 100,000 a year, and I think it might be more than that, once we go to a world of autopilot cars, 
we will not be comfortable with uh, we won't tolerate a hundred thousand deaths we probably won't even tolerate one death from a computer killing a human Mm -hmm. it's interesting how whatever cognitive bias comes into play that we can go from a hundred thousand to one but we probably won't be comfortable with that one happening absolutely and uh, there's a field in computer science it's called human computer interaction yes and tell us about that in the in that field what they say is that humans empathize with humans but humans don't empathize with machines what if what if Ayush? What about when we have very biologically similar avatars of machines that look like humans with the with with artificial faces that we can't distinguish? This scenario is called a Turing test. I don't know if you know what a Turing test is. Yeah. Well, I explain it. Yes, and I thought we passed it many years ago, didn't we? Difficult to answer. Difficult Depends. to answer. Okay, tell us. Right. So a Turing test is when you have a machine in front of you and uh, you're asking the machine's questions. The machine is responding. Let's say this is one example of it. The machine is responding and you are not able to distinguish whether it's a machine or a human. Then the machine has passed. Whether the, the person Turing responding, and it's usually a chat, right? It's, it's a chat? Yeah, it's a chat. It so can come in form of a chat as in well. In form of a chat. Right? And so you as a human cannot distinguish no. if you're chatting with a computer or uh, if you're chatting with a another human yeah after alan turing and he did it in the 50s he yeah so alan turing so so he came up with this idea right right? okay so he came up this is with this concept of a turing test but right now when we are talking about ai and ai models this test means something different okay the example that i gave was uh, a conversational agent example where the ai is a conversational agent and a human is talking to that agent which in reality is a robot okay. or a machine right and the person doesn't know uh, what's on the other side you keep chatting and at some point you say that okay i'm done it was, it was a nice conversation and you don't realize that's where we have crossed a turing test like the machine has passed but oh, that's for this scenario for you're saying that is the the factor that you really you can't you don't even recognize at all that you're speaking yeah. with a yeah you're speaking with a machine Right, so that is kind of the Turing test, but with, with an audio component as well. Like, so that is for the audio. So this is wh- when I'm talking about this, mm. I'm talking about a conversational agent where you're chatting with that okay, agent. Okay, so yeah. this is one scenario. Okay, another scenario could be when you're talking to someone. Right, right? you're talking to someone, you don't realize whether that's a machine or that's a robot. Mm. Then that particular problem Bang. passes. That problem, that speech problem, passes the Turing passes test. Passes that level yeah. of the Turing test. Then there is. There are other things. For example, machine translation, right? Let's take the example of machine translation. You have a sentence in English. You give it to someone. You don't know who this someone is, right? Mm. You give it to someone. You get a translation. You read it. And it's like, whoa, that's perfect, mm. right? And you don't even recognize whether that's a human or a machine, right? right? Machine translation has passed the Turing test. I didn't know there were so many layers to the Turing test. Yes, because you cannot say that one Turing test is for every AI model, mm. right? You cannot do that. Because every model will require a different setting. I see. Right? Google Duo. Familiar with Google Duo? I think mm-hmm. they called it Duo. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and they, they use Where the assistant would call and make a reservation and stuff, right? Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. So for, for if, if you happen not to have heard of it yet, they Google came up with a technology that sounds like a human speaking, and they demoed it by having this technology make a reservation at a restaurant. Sounds exactly like human speech. Like, hey, how are you? <laughs> Good, thanks yourself. I'd like to make a reservation. And person says how many people and they're like oh for two 
the restaurant says, oh, we're, we're busy for two at seven, and the robot, which is Google Duo, says, okay, well, how about at 7.30? They have the whole thing go back and forth, and the person at the restaurant thinks it's a reservation from a person. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think you can Google it there, Google Duo. Speaking about the, mach the translation portion, another thing that I was reading about or listening about recently is that Google is working on, on a technology that will translate in real time, maybe implemented with augmented reality glasses, mm -hmm. languages that other people are speaking to you. But they would do it with via bone, I think it's bone induction, mm -hmm. bone induction, so that's a resonance on your cheekbone mm -hmm. that you can actually still hear, which makes me think that I don't know if I'm wasting my time by learning <laughs> other languages. <laughs> Because I might be able to put my glasses on, yeah. and you have your glasses on, and mm -hmm. I understand what you're saying, regardless of the language. Yeah. I think I think that time is coming soon. I think we are really getting better at machine translation. Five years, ten years, twelve, twenty. Difficult to say. Very difficult to say. But if we keep collecting good quality data mm -hmm. at the pace that we are collecting right now, maybe How five many years. Five years yeah, till maybe, it's maybe. till it's widespread adoption, or the hi the high tech no, hubs no, no, will no, adopt it. When when you see a research paper that says that okay, we have done it. Right. Not, w I'm not talking about this technology coming into market. Mm. It would take like five to ten more years to like reach to the to public, market. right? But when I say five years, I I'm saying that okay, people doing research on it, people showing, see this is possible. Mm. Tell us about your your experience in Germany. All right, but before I go there, I yeah. want to answer the question. What did we say? What that we, we had have previously? Yeah. yeah well, which one? So the question was that if I want to learn coding or programming yes and how do i use it as an art right oh yeah how, how do we use it as an art i think i'll give you an example i'll explain with an example very close friend of mine at work he is building a, what is it called hydroponics hydroponics no not hydroponics where they have these water pots and they're trying to grow Hi plants hydroponics yeah. hydroponics. hydroponics okay so he he is very much into it right so he bought a kit he tried to set it up and it works okay but then he quickly realized that this doesn't work perfectly. I need to do something about it. Reason being, he needed some humidity, he needed some air, air circulation, and he needed to constantly measure the temperature, right, in the small corner of his, of his room that he set everything up. So what he did was, because he knew programming, he bought a few sensors, which, which cost him, I don't know, 100 bucks at mm -hmm. most, and he wrote a few lines of code to measure the temperature, mm which sends him a notification every time the temperature rises beyond a certain threshold so that he can go, he can switch on the fan. The next thing that he's planning to do is connect it with the fan so that whenever the temperature goes beyond a threshold, the fan automatically turns on and the plants get enough air and humidity, right? So if, so all of this was possible only because he, only because he knew programming, he knew how to code. If you don't know how to do that, then what would you do? You would do it manually. You'd go there, you'd check every day, all the time. So this answers another question. This answers the need of optimizing stuff. Mm. I think we as humans, we tend to optimize things. Mm. We tend to solve problems. If you don't have a problem to solve, we go nuts. If you sit idle at home and you have nothing to do, you will go nuts, right? I think there is, there is like a, there's a philosophically speaking, this is the same thing that people do. We like to solve problems. We like to optimize. If you know how to program, then it'll be much easier for you to optimize. It'll be much easier for you to solve problems. I'll give another example. Let's say you own, talking about churros, okay? Yeah, so we were talking <laughs> about churros before, yeah. Right. Let's say you own a churros food truck, right? 
every day you get a lot of people people eat churros every day you're paying a lot of money they're paying for a medium size churros packet a large size churros packet you have a bunch of data right you as a business owner you would make some decisions based on your intuition and the things that you see every day right but if you know programming then what you can do is you can take that data that you have from your software that you're using which everyone uses and then you can write small pieces of code like 100 lines of code or 50 lines of code to tell you what people actually want and what decisions you need to make to make maximum profit right give us an example so s- for example would it be measuring you know between 10 and 12 everyone orders this this type of churro so you should extra have extra stock for this churro ah, so and you I can raise the price you want me to like uh, give an example right? yeah churro example okay, so I'll give a real example. Yeah. For example, I I have a sheet, I have a sheet of data where I know who is coming in. Like I know that two people came in, they ordered a small and two mediums, and I have this uh data for the last I don't know, two years let's say. Mm. And then what I do is I try to predict at what time I need to increase production, right? At what time I need to order more inventory. How should I place my price? How should I price my products so that i get maximum gain what kind of discounts i need to give right all these questions can be answered by writing just a few lines of code i would say given you have collected this data and you know how to write code mm. so this this tells you right how it can drive a business how it can drive how it can help you with a hobby project or i don't know if you r- if you want to write a small game just thinking of this now but do you know if there is actually a uh, app or software out there that does that specifically for restaurants hmm yes i think yes 100% i don't know if in my app. in my day job i happen to have seen them yeah but oh, they're okay. they're they're very often industry specific a lot of them focus on supply chains entirely so they'll give you the whole supply chain and they say we can look at the let's say for example retail trends zara is extremely good at this zara knows on a week to week day by day basis what a consumer generally is going to order based down to the geography and then they can rapidly iterate and change their entire supply chain but but yes really connected restaurants try to manage and do this and there's a number of companies i say a number maybe it's a dozen maybe it's two dozen that are trying to build softwares for restaurants in particular on on that measuring who orders what at what time how do you get the maximum price value out of them what should you upsell them on cross sell discount how do you get them to come back all with the right technology i find all this very intriguing and i interviewed for a company and their product was for supermarkets so what they would do is they would install their software and sorry uh, sorry to cut you off open table does a lot of data analytics on that as well right. the reservation because they can see who's going they have literally the flow of demand and they distribute it to restaurants and so open table has a i think a lot of analytics what we continue what we saying yeah so i interviewed for a company and the product that they were trying to develop was it, it was a software that they would deploy in supermarkets where people when people are billing uh, a person comes in uh has a bunch of things everything goes on the system and they instantly get a discount right and that discount is dynamic mm. and the discount amount is decided right there in real time and the way they decide it is that they want to optimize on the profit that they make 
so they have a goal so they have these models ah. that you can train given a goal so the goal is to maximize profit so if the machine is saying that give this person a 10% discount then the machine is actually trying to increase profit and then what they do it is they would make it very dynamic in real time so that it will be different for different people sometimes they will not give discounts sometimes they would increase or decrease the prices on the shelf to balance everything out but it's all controlled by an ai the ai is looking at everything what's going out what's coming in what are people buying when are they buying it everything and it decides the discount and what i really like about this is the way the company had thought about it the so what they were selling is basically an ai but what how they were actually selling it is that they were selling it as a discount machine hmm. a real time discount machine you come in you buy something you get a discount so this is what the customer knows like a real end customer who is buying let's say milk or some groceries in the shop but what they are actually selling is an ai that is controlling everything not just the discounts but the prices and everything it's very interesting and and it's because it's the uh, what's what's the name for an algorithm that it pursues a goal it's goal so one of them is reinforcement learning oh okay so yeah. and we have a big focus of that here in montreal with with professor joshua benjo and Uni yeah. university of montreal yeah so deep, le deep learning more but reinforcement learning as well yeah reinforce so professor joshua benjo he he does a lot of things he's a pioneer mm. and uh, he won this year with his one of his other professors right the turing right. prize right in computer he, science. he won the turing award right right so he is he's one person who has changed the ai field i would say mm. for good and he has made a huge dent in this entire field and i think he has impacted millions of people today because every other app that you use they are using some kind of modern ai algorithms and uh, i would say he's responsible for those algorithms to run yeah That's it's amazing. big right it's big you should come to uh, one of our sessions. We'll talk about it offline. Um, <laughs> but so for reinforcement learning, does the does the algorithm just you you give it a goal, right? And you say the goal is profit right. of the store. Mm -hmm. Does it just run, s you know, thousands or millions of possible scenarios? And whenever it gets a higher profit, you give it a some sort of reward, like in quotation marks. You say this is good. How do you reward an algorithm? Do you just say this is good? Do more of it? Right. So let's talk about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. Right. How does uh, a reinforcement learning algorithm work. Mm. So a reinforcement learning algorithm works the exact way that you've said. Like it needs a reward. It needs yeah. a reward, right? So that's what I'm really curious about. I have no clue. How do you reward a computer? Yes. So let's take an example again. Let's take the example of a video game. Mm. So in a video game, you have a few controls like left, right, jump, swoosh, and stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. And your score that you get in the end, that's, let's say, the reward. The higher the score, the better you're playing. Points, right. Sure. Uh, okay, you, yeah. get, you get some points. Yeah. So you want a model to learn how to control, how to maneuver, so that the agent or oh. the, the player that you're playing gets the maximum points, right? So how would you do that? Uh, let me give a short background on how AI models work, right? AI models have a lot of parameters. What are these parameters? Think of them as knobs. They are like a million knobs. A single AI, AI model can have over a million knobs. Think <laughs> of them. Of yeah, there are a lo lot of knobs. Think of those knobs as tunable. Like you can change all of them and the final outcome would change somehow, right? And the goal here is to change the knobs automatically using some algorithms. And one of them is, and one of those algorithms is called the backpropagation algorithm. And Yoshua Benjo, he was involved in 
writing that paper hmm. so you can think so this this is the algorithm that almost everyone is using these days to train to train uh, ai models well, when we talk about algorithms we talk about languages languages and you said reinforcement learning, learning yeah. right is 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 the code particularly set to accomplish an end goal yes right yes. and and you know if i if i understand all this and take into account that the notion of reinforcement learning and language to solve a problem you can actually take that into a macro lens and look at how literally everything is a language if i'm a psychologist my, the very way i think of interacting with someone else who is coming into my office for a session that requires in my mind its own set of parameters and that in and of itself is like a coding you're coding in your mind an interaction and i think that ends up attaching to the bigger notion of what we would, would discussed at the very beginning of the conversation which is it's energy really mm -hmm. and our energy as humans our output of energy and that that could be it, that is a coding in and of itself and how we decide to use it is really the the art component of the argument that was at the beginning of this conversation which is like how do you use it to create something meaningful is it coding in you know on the web is it coding in the way i interact with a patient is it coding in the way i sell a product is it coding in the way i i interview somebody if i'm a recruiter for example or a lawyer for that matter so like do, do you do you understand coding or, or feel the notion that coding is is more than just what it is that we know, like, you know, based on the net and the languages of coding, like, you know, with data. Philosophically speaking, it's, it's, a, it's coding is life, isn't it? I, I, I would agree. And the code of life is DNA. That's where everything is programmed. And the way, like, everything that you said, like, if you look at it this way, then DNA is where everything is programmed. What you're doing, how you are doing it, some of the things that we learn on the way and we program it in our DNA and then we pass it on to our children and then they are programmed in a certain way. That is, that is the code of the universe. This is how, they, uh, how, how some of the you know, micro microbiologists or uh, uh, DNA researchers uh, would say that DNA is the code of life. <laughs> I was going to say break too. Yeah, this is so good, man. So good. We're live, Dan. Can you hear us? Yep. We're back with a fantastic guest, Ayush Mandash. I'm back. <laughs> tell us, uh, tell us about Germany, man. I know you spent some time there. You studied there. You lived there. You're in Berlin. You went to the the nightclub culture there, <laughs> the music culture, the people. Mm, good times. Berlin is one of my favorite cities. I was I was talking to John while coming here, and I was telling him how much I love Berlin. It's a beautiful city. And uh, yeah, I think it's one of the most livable cities. That is also something that we found out. It is mm. actually one of the most livable cities. Mm. Um, Especially because of rent prices too and everything, right? <laughs> well, yes. <Yeah. laughs> Moderated rent. Okay, going back to the question that I was in Germany. I went there to do my master's. Mm. I studied, I majored in artificial intelligence in uh, the University of Kaiserslautern. Kaiserslautern is a city on the west, on the western border of Germany, very close to the French border. And did I you did you pay? Uh, I know Germany has a lot of favorable tuition terms. Did you have a 
beneficial tuition terms very good point i almost paid nothing like i definitely did pay something that's the so- social security you apart from that there was no other fee that i had to pay yeah, everything else is mine like if i own something i spend something the right. university does not demand anything else amazing yeah. two years two years i i finished my master in two and a half years okay. and um, you have to pay this every semester but it's almost nothing 225 euros every a semester, semester yeah Yeah. And then so it's just living fees like rent and food. Yeah, the rent and food. And if you get like almost everyone works. Okay. Um, everyone works. So almost classes everyone. Classes during yeah, the day yeah, or yeah, no? Yeah, yeah. Classes during the day, people would work in the evening or you don't have classes every day of the week, right? So people would just do some part-time job. Hmm. And uh, m- I think most of the students they work and hmm. they somehow make a living. What did you do? I worked in two companies. I worked in the university first. Uh, in the human computer interaction department and that's, that's why so cool it's <laughs> so funny you mention that i have it in my notes like my note says phd in business or phd in human computer interaction uh, but it's a I very d- cool subject if i do that that requires me to go back and have a masters in computer science which <laughs> is a bachelor's in computer science which is mm. so uh, i'm trying to think of ways to get around it I don't you know. can do a masters in design like a human centered design you can do a course you m- you will not find a master's course in human competitive uh, human centered design but you will definitely find courses on human centered design and then would that lead to anyways then maybe that leads to a phd or not but would you ever do a phd or not really uh, on the no, goal right I, now? i don't want to do i want to go for a phd i somehow have had the option of doing it and uh, i know a few professors i know w- one of my so my supervisor in my masters i know him very well his name is marcus leviki and uh, he's he has supervised me and he would like to have me uh, in his university as well he i even interviewed for them and then i decided that i don't want to go for a phd now i think if i talk to him we can go through the interview process and mm. i can maybe try and do a phd it's good th- it's good three to seven years right four to seven years uh, i would say depends on your topic in computer science it's a bit faster than other fields Less like mathematics four? yeah you can do it in four depends on what you're working on right. but the thing is nowadays universities are mandating a few things that you need to do as soon as you become a phd candidate because they're paying you right now as a yeah. master student they would not pay you as a phd candidate they would have to pay pay you right so they pay you money you go do a few courses you have to write a few papers you have to submit in a few journals and stuff like that so they they have these mandates right. so it stretches automatically to four years right. let's say but an easy four to five years i can say and if you have a topic and you have a good mentor or you have a decent amount of knowledge or a genius maybe you can finish it in 3 so people have done that as well people have finished it in 3 uh, 3 years as well funny it's just such a significant part of the our high earning years as well depends if we take ourselves out of the workforce for those high earning years but but anyways depends if it's 3 years or 6 years depends your field i think someone can be overeducated and undereducated so yeah i think i think it's bigger than that i think if you do it if you invest that much amount of time mm. and you're doing it for the right cause for example take yosho benjio he did it for the right cause he spent a lot of time doing something that people did not agree to do people said that this would not work he spent so much time and he did something and now it is changing the world you see if you look at it that scale you need to just push through and a lot of computer science uh, students phd students are doing this the same and they are all motivated by yosho benjo and there are a lot of phd candidates are rolling in some professors don't ha- don't have the capacity to take in more phd students can you imagine so peop- like yosho benjo would uh, i think yosho would definitely take people but if you go to university of toronto where uh, there is jeff hinton 
Jeff Hinton would probably not take a lot of students. He would say that I'm done for the next, I don't know, 20 years. If you go to some other field, maybe you go to literature or something, which is sad in a, in a way, right? Not but as popular. Yeah, not as popular. So like, if people keep doing it, if, you, if we keep fueling universities with more money and we give them more uh, funding, then we might see such a big impact mm. in a different field, let's say literature or something, mm. or anthropology, I don't know. I'm just letting the words sip. <laughs> <laughs> um, a bit of a segue, but still on the topic of Berlin. You said oh. it was a very livable city. What I want to know, um, probably one of the more simple questions of the night. Favorite food in Berlin? Favorite food in Berlin? F- the food that made you feel at home in Berlin, what was it? Whew. I think my favorite food in Berlin were those fusion food trucks. And they would sell all weird kinds of burgers and hot dogs. You need to, so there they have the sausages. Curry, currywurst? Oh, currywurst. Like currywurst is really good, but I'm not a big fan of currywurst. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. For some reason, I, I just don't click don't with like currywurst. It. Okay. Yeah, I love, so what I really like about Berlin's food culture is the fusion food trucks. Super cheap and uh, really good. Like amazing. What are they, f- what are they, wait, did we talk about this? What are they fusioning? Like what kind of fusion? Oh, yes. <laughs> so, the, so the things that I like are the sushis where they have stuffings from the sausages. <laughs> I love them. And people would judge me for that. So sushi stuff really with sausage. Them. So I they like would it. make these sushis like this and uh, they would stuff the rice in there and they have the sausage meat, right? So you chop the sausage meat and then put a bit of that in there. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're a so bit good. drunk and you have some food on the street, you get like some six pieces of those. Like, oh, <laughs> oh, that's really good. Yeah, it's great. Right now, yeah. currywurst is the most popular though. People love, people just love currywurst. This is a sausage with a bread, brötchen. Brötchen is, it's bread. Tra- literally translates to bread, but it's a bit hard. It's mm-hmm. not the bread. It's not the sandwich bread or the mm-hmm. hot dog bread that you would have over mm-hmm. here. And then it has a curry sauce on it, like a cur- red curry sauce. Yeah, it's good. They also have a uh, really good doner, doner kebab from the Turkish influence there, the Turkish folks that are there. Super good doner that's cheap, it's like three euros, and it's a f- full meal. This reminds me that maybe doner is my favorite. Yeah. And I just did not remember. Some doner, crazy for doner. sure, because of the price. Yeah. Three and a half euros, and you get a yeah, doner. A massive. All kinds it's of meat and vegetables in there, all marinated. And yeah, stuff. everything that you need. Really good. I think doner. In Berlin, there is a donor shop, and uh, there is uh, another small shop like a Dep, like their Dep, and that donor shop is so popular that people line up. I went there. <laughs> Gemüse something, Mister Gemüse. Yeah, 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 yeah. Gemüse donor. Gemüse is vegetable donor. Vegetable donor, right? Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> people would line up, buy beer, and just chill on the street and wait for the turn. You're waiting in line, Dan, yeah. with the beer to get your donor. I wait, we waited 45 minutes. You must have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you wait. That's the thing. That's the thing that you do in Berlin. You go, you get some beer, you stand there, you wait, you chill with your friends, you drink a beer, and then you chit-chat, and you, you just don't realize that you're there. And then you get your donor, you have your food, and then you go somewhere else. It's <laughs> fantastic. All, of, all they had is nonstop piles of fresh ingredients, because they have a 45-minute line 24-7. Yeah, yeah. Fresh ingredients, making these donors, and there was fresh mint and fresh lemon, and I, th- the all I, th- I mean... 
I don't even know if I can remember it now. And there was some fresh cheese in there. Yeah, yeah, they have a lot of things. Donut is really good. Grilled, grilled bread and meat and fermented vegetables and roasted, marinated, all this. And stuff. three and a half euros in Berlin, you will not get that anywhere else. Super, super cheap. What are the questions that keep you up at night? Well, currently, it's a bit personal, though. Currently okay, don't talk about <laughs> it. Just do something <laughs> else. <laughs> unless, uh, unless of course you want to, but otherwise, it really, it's just what are the what are the things you ask yourself? What are the what are the difficult questions you struggle with? What are the uh, things that make you wonder if you're doing the right thing? The thing, one of them is, is that I've slowly started to realize that what I'm doing, like for example, AI, I'm doing a lot of AI, and uh, there are some problems that are very difficult to solve in AI because of lack of data, and the things that I keep thinking about all the time and they keep me up at night in quotes, is that how can we write new AI algorithms that work really well on very few data samples? Like you collect just a little bit of data and they would work. Either that, or maybe you write algorithms that, that can use the learning from other algorithms and then make how this process pretty fast. How come we don't have data? Because it's unethical to collect it or we just can't collect no, it? No, people are not aware. People are not aware of this. People are not doing it. Just like my hometown, they speak this language called Odia. And uh, we don't have Odia datasets. And I think pe because people have not realized that this is something that they need to do to solve some problems that are coming on the way, right? Because the US or the UK or Europe, there are many countries, they have advanced and they have reached this point where they, they have solved some problems and now they're trying to solve this problem which has reached a meta level, right? And we are still trying to solve some problems there. Like for example, that's a poverty on a large scale, right? As soon as we reach that point that we enter the first world, we just enter the first world, there'll be new problems, right? And then we will have to solve those problems. And then we will we'll be hit with this, another problem that is we don't have data. Like what do we do? Now we need to train models, now technology mm -hmm. is advancing. So stuff like this. This is something that people are not thinking about, absolutely. And the other thing is people are not aware. People don't know what data will do in the future. Mm. Now here, sitting in Canada, sitting in Montreal, we can say that, okay, we need to collect data because AI is everywhere. You go back to India, that's not the scene. People mm. don't, a lot of people just don't know what AI mm. is. It reminds me of the quote I heard recently, the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. Very, very well said. <laughs> Whoever that said first that. time, I was like, wow, that's so true. In some parts very of the world, true. the future is very much here. Mm -hmm. Example, what you're just talking about. We're very aware of artificial intelligence and implications. In other parts of the world, they're not there. Dan, Dan Durbano. The future. <laughs> you said the word the future, and then a question popped in my head, and I wanted to ask you this question, okay? And the question is, if we think about the future... Most of the time when people think about the future, they ask, what's the purpose of what I'm doing? Because wh what's the purpose of it? Because it has to have some kind of impact in the future. And therefore, my question, not only for you, but for everyone in the table, at the table, and to Valerie who just walked in the door, this is a question for you too. Do you think that for yourself, can you settle with the notion that Maybe the purpose is just to be. <laughs> and that the future is an illusion. And if we live in the future every day, but and in the present moment, we are not aware and conscious and, 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 f and get that feeling of being a full-fledged human of who we need to be, who you need to be, can we 
see a life where it's only that. Because it seems like many people are stuck in what they have to become tomorrow. Where if they think and just focus on what makes them whole right now, then every single instance of tomorrow will be blissful and the future will be blissful because in this moment, you're doing everything that you need to do to make you feel the way you're supposed to feel to live a full-fledged life. And for you, that means being submersed in code. For you, that means something different. And for me, it means something different. It means something different for everyone. But looking inwards to find what that is and then tweaking your every day to be the best version of yourself in that that isn't really looking into the future. Then you're living a life fully in the moment and the future is taking place within you all the time. You are your own future. I somehow agree. I somehow agree. It was very intense. Thank you. <laughs> but I somehow agree. I think we are discussing, although this is not on the topic, it's very philosophical. Mm. Um, but I think I do agree that we decide to do something and then that creates the future. And whatever we, if we submerge ourselves in this time, in the present moment, and then we are looking at only us and what am I doing right now? And that itself is building future. That itself is building the future. Yeah, yeah. The future and the past exist as very elaborate illusions in our mind because we really can only ever access them through right now and right a second ago and the next second is going to happen. It's very weird because we... You know, the second ago just passed, but how do we know it just passed? Because we, we remember it just passed, and we remember sitting here. Um, but it's really weird because we have to be aware of the future, and then we have to be aware of the past. But they don't really, quote unquote, I don't know. I guess we have to define the term "exist," but they don't really exist. We only exist right now. We get lost in that. I had a very interesting conversation with a gentleman who's much older than us, and he's very, uh, he's very, sp- he was very spiritual. He's very connected so to speak you know what i mean to himself and to the minute a very very meditative and yet he said to me you know when you go through your day-to-day how are you thinking about your life and i'm like well i mean i'm thinking about what i need to do you know in an hour thinking about what i need to do tonight thinking about what's going to happen in a month i'm thinking about you know sometimes i have images of what if i do this what will be the outcome in 20 years from now (laughs) you know what i mean like butterfly effect you know exactly and he goes, imagine if you lived for every minute. <laughs> imagine if you lived for every second. Imagine what your experience of life will become. And, and he goes, and that is the ultimate truth. If you, if you can channel that, you've, you've, you've got it all because you literally are living the essence of life. And I find that, to me, is for me, the only true purpose because that's the only type of measurement we have of what life is. It's, it's what's happening right around us. And if we can't be fully conscious and enjoy and taste it for what it's worth, then, then, our, then we're living in our minds. And our minds are dictating from the external world how, what we're supposed to be doing and who we have to be. And in a way, we end up becoming a slave to the external stimulus where the answer of life and everything that is meaningful to us is happening inside all the time. We just don't even know it because we're living always with this projection of our external, what we need to do. And, and you know, anyway, it was a bit of a rant, but yeah. 
I'm going to write it down. Live for the minute. I like it. Ayush? Right. Do you have any any parting or final words for the audience? Anything you'd like to leave the listeners with at the end of this fantastic conversation? Of course, we'll have many more fantastic conversations to come with, but I know this is a little bit of a question out of left field, but or even a final topic you want to discuss? Mm, the final topic I, what I want to discuss is the two things that I want to discuss. One yeah, okay, good. is the field of computer science and people in tech and how there is an imbalance in tech. It's mm. something that I want to talk. I will not take a lot of time talking about that. Well, you could take the next 12 hours. I only have some <laughs> work in 12 hours. <laughs> and the other one is that how can we more how can we be more aware of AI and what is happening in AI? That's great. And yeah. plan for it. Let's do both so of those. Yeah, so, so I'll, I'll start with number two. Oh, you start with number two. Okay. I'll start with number two because... Um, AI and awareness. AI and awareness. I think uh, we as programmers, if some programmers are listening to this, mm. then and you guys are into AI and you are learning about it and trying it out because it's easily available these days, then kudos, keep doing that. Mm. And other people, like managers, like business grads, like yourself, John. I should do this. Yeah. You guys should know what is AI and how to use it you don't you don't need to know what it does you need to know how to use it as a tool mm. as a tool to make decisions to to automate processes in the future and to also take more data driven decisions so that you know that i have this intuition i want to do this but looking at the data looking at how people are working how how the universe works i look at the data and i decide accordingly i'll not just go by intuition so something like this i think this is a thought process that mm. should that managers or people with business uh, degrees, they should they should learn think this. About, right. So this is one, and okay. uh, the other one that I want to talk about is people in tech. I think there is a bit of imbalance in the tech universe, mm. and uh, I think we need more diversity. I think mm. we need people from everywhere so that they can sit, they can write lines and lines of code, and uh, you remember something that I said in the beginning that we're writing these lines of code and they're changing so many people, right? They're changing mm. your lives, and I want a world where people who are writing code come from everywhere hmm. so that they can write code and everyone will be impacted by it. That's beautiful, man. <laughs> Thank you. Ayush, if people want to learn more about you or follow your stuff or keep track of you online, where should, where should they go? You can look me up. Uh, I'm on Instagram. My ID is my soul is a hippie. No spaces. <laughs> <laughs> my soul is a hippie. That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> and if you want to listen to my songs, I'm on Spotify and I am my soul is a hippie. Oh man, I need to listen to your songs. <laughs> I never listen to your songs. Yeah. And if you want to look me up, you look up Das Ayushman, D-A-S-H-A-Y-U-S-H-M-A-N. That's my name. Dash Ayushman. Okay. And you will find me on GitHub. Amazing. And GitHub developer portal. That's it for this episode, guys. Thank you very much. John Wade, Dan Durbano, and Ayushman Dash. We'll see you on the next episode of Rise and Shine Radio.